0: Welcome to Inside the Road, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. My name's David Clark, your host, and today I'm excited to be speaking with Kim Morrison, who runs the water fund for Blue Sky. I'm really happy to have Kim on on the podcast for this episode. He's someone I've been trying to get on for more than a year now, namely because they invest in an asset class, which for most investors, they'll be very unfamiliar in that water rights. And they've been doing that since 2008, they've produced a compound annual growth rate of around 19%, or just under at 18.99% as at the end of December 2018. I really enjoy this, and I think it's a great way for people to have an asset within their portfolio that doesn't behave like traditional equities or properties and very uncorrelated, so a great balance to their portfolios. Of course, I encourage people to listen to the disclaimer at the end of this podcast. And of course, this isn't specific advice for anyone in their circumstances, and people really should get individual advice uh, before making investments. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Please remember to receive to send me feedback at david.clark at codacapital.com. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Kim Morrison, thanks for joining us Inside the Rope. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, David. Yeah. Well, Kim, I'm really excited to have you on it's uh, you and your investment style and what you do is something I've wanted to have on the podcast for a number of for a while now so I'm really excited to have you on board. One of the reasons I was keen to have you on is you have an investment uh, vehicle and philosophy that's very different to what most of our clients see and what they have in our portfolio their portfolios. Many of them are very used to um, Australian shares, etc. So I'm, I'm great. It's great to have you on. Can you start off talking a little bit about your background um,
1: and yourself, so we get a bit of a feel for you? Yeah, certainly. Well, I uh, grew up in regional Australia and then have had a career in agribusiness and trading commodities and been involved with the production of commodities and, and in particular, irrigated commodities. So. In my history, of sort of grown up alongside industries like the cotton sector and sugar industry and other horticultural industries. Um, I guess I was trading and exporting cotton predominantly from Australia into Asian markets and through that period of the 1990s, early 2000s, uh, China was not really a big market for us. Uh, They were a big consumer and producer of cotton themselves but not involved in the trade to any great extent from year to year. And then once they became part of the WTO, it just flourished. And they became 40% of the world trade of cotton within about three or four years. And Australian from a very low level. From almost nothing. Wow. And then Australia's exports of cotton to China blossomed from zero to 70%. And out of that, uh, we... Had a recognition around you know what does this now mean that that population all of a sudden has got to a point of development where it's per capita wealth is going to change demand patterns for a lot of different things and food stuff in particular and what Australia has been an export market generally of commodities uh, and ag commodities for a long long time we're very efficient farmers uh, but it's a big private equity market if you like there's lots of family businesses there's very few listed companies and there's been a lack of capital in the sector, equity capital in particular, for a long, long time. What the rise of these per capita wealth in Asian markets meant was that there was gonna be increasing demand for foodstuffs and that we had a capacity to supply that. And we looked at how do we get exposure to that thematic. Um, And for us, in trying to create a reliable supply chain to service those markets we have to contend with the variability of Australia's climate and 2018 has been an example in eastern Australia where we've had drought conditions that impact supply Uh, we figured that to have reliability you have to have access to water you have to have the ability to irrigate your crops so that you can then build a reliable supply chain and that had been our experience my own experience of being frustrated when prices were strong because we had droughts, we couldn't supply anything. Uh, If you had water, you could. And so in thinking about how to get exposed to that and invest in that cycle, uh, we kept on coming back to investing purely in water. The other thing that we knew from our time in the industry was that the regulation of the water market in Australia was evolving after a long period of time. And that we'd been through this uh, constant review of the fact that water is scarce in Australia from time to time. And uh, that the governments, both state and federal, were contending with how do we make sure there's enough going through for environmental flows and also continue to develop regional Australia with water that's been made available out of the dams that were constructed through the period from the 1900s to the 1980s. Uh, We got to a point as a nation where there was a recognition in the Murray-Darling Basin in particular in the early 90s that perhaps we'd built too many dams, we'd allocated too much water and that we needed to pare that back to ensure that the river systems were sustainable in the long term. That debate went on for a long time and we got to a point where the water licences as they were, were reformed and changed into a water title to a share of a particular resource. And that share of the resource is fixed, but what water you get from it is gonna depend on what water is available in that resource, which changes from year to year. And so we have a systems of very uh, protected at law, water entitlements that are a perpetual right uh, to receive an allocation of water from a particular river system each year or aquifer. Uh, we've been investing in those water rights and uh, we've been able to achieve returns for investors out of selling the water that we receive each year or leasing that water out to farmers over the long term and through the capital growth of those water rights over time. So our investment thesis is consistent with the National Water Initiative which was created back in 2004 where our governments Um, Both sides of the aisle basically decided that water is a scarce resource and the best way, most efficient way to be able to allocate that water is to have a market that can provide a price signal that will allow water to trade between lower value to higher value uses. We have clearly defined that the environmental requirements come first that at least 50% and now closer to two thirds, 65, 67% of the water that is flowing into the river systems has to flow through those systems to maintain environmental assets. And that only after that can we extract water for purposes of irrigation or, or mining or, or any human use. Um, so, Kim, am I right in
0: thinking about this, that if you're my mate up at Wee Wall with his cotton farm and he he has a certain amount of land, I want to say it's 4,000 acres, each year he gets an allocation of water, or does he only get that once? He gets it each year and he can sell, or he can choose to buy more water if he wants
1: yeah. to. So historically, uh, those farmers say at we were, uh, were able to apply years and years ago to get a licence to extract water from the dams on the Namoi River. and. That licence has now become a water entitlement, so they now have a title to get an annual allocation of water from the Namoy River. And can they sell that asset and the whole entitlement yep. to get it? If they say, I don't want to be a farmer anymore, I'll sell the entitled lock, stock and barrel? That's right. So this, the title is completely separate from the land title. Mm-hmm. It's It used to be attached to your land title, it's no longer the case. Uh, so it is able to be traded amongst lots of farmers in the in the Namoy Valley. So. And even anyone else can buy that entitlement. You don't have to be a landholder there. If you own that entitlement, you get allocated a volume of water each year, if there's water available. Mm-hmm. So there's probably two types of entitlement there: high security, which represents perhaps the last, well, the bottom ten percent of the airspace in the dam. The bottom of the dam that the never the evaporates dam. or runs out. That's it's right. The most solid. That's right. That's right. It's it's every year or 90 years and 100, you're gonna get 100% of your water allocated from there. Mm -hmm. Then the top 90% of the dam has a lot more variability where you've got, uh, it's gonna depend much more on annual rainfall and that volume is gonna go up and down a lot throughout the year. And that's the level where you may get allocated in, in dry years, you might not get anything allocated like this year, you get zero in other years you might get 100% uh, allocated and then you can grow your annual crops in those years. So the system is quite dynamic in that regard and if there's no water available, the annual croppers make the decision not to plant. Um, Mm -hmm. If there's water available, they can put that into use. And this is where you're
0: saying the efficiency comes in because if you're someone in the past who has been uh, farming rice Mm-hmm. Um, and it's low value and there's low price and it's very intensive and uses a lot of water, mm-hmm. you may choose not to farm your rice
1: that season or that year because you'd actually make more money selling your water rights. Yeah, so in, say, the rice-growing areas, that's exactly right. I mean, it's a, the relative value of these crops is all different and certainly most farmers today do look at what is their return per megalitre of water that they're using and they're conscious that they could trade that water Uh, and there are markets that's basically operated on a day-to-day basis where there's a bid offer spread for water in those systems. So say in a rice growing area, the Murrumbidgee River in New South Wales, uh, you traditionally have seen a lot of rice growing down there but also permanent crops. There's a lot of vineyards there, citrus operations, almond, walnuts. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's permanent crops and there's then annual crops. A year like this, we've had very little winter rainfall, we've had less water available. Uh, So the permanent cropping guys, they absolutely have to water their crops. They tend to have access to high reliability water entitlements that will always get 90% of the years getting 100% of their volume. And they've been allocated 95% this year. So they have got water. In the annual cropping guys, they only get allocated 7% of their volume this year. And as a consequence, the price of water has transacted, it rallied basically from $250 to $400 to $500 a megalitre throughout the last few months, mm-hmm. as a signal to r- annual cropping farmers not to plant a crop back in September, October, uh, because say to grow a, a cotton crop, sorry, grow a rice crop, you might only receive net after all of your costs, the return per megalitre might be $250, mm-hmm. but you were going to be paid 400 if you sold the water instead. So yep. that was the equation that made a lot of sense then. Well, let's not grow a rice crop. Let's go to the coast for holidays this summer yeah. <laughs> and we'll sell the water to someone. They're all sitting over there at a little I don't, don't know about that necessarily, <laughs> but uh, I'm
0: amazed every year. You've- if yep. I go up in the Little how many of them how many of the farmers are there
1: and yeah, the place well, is full of cruisers? Everyone needs a break. Maybe that's where they are. Um, oh, they work hard, don't get me wrong yeah, about that. So h-
0: how long have you had the fun going for?
1: So we've been investing in water since 2008. Originally it was a a mandate for an offshore Mm -hmm. investor um, and then we created our own fund in 2012. Mm -hmm. Um, We've continued to build that out. It's an open-ended fund uh, and we have quarterly redemption windows available. Uh, We've lived through lots of different drier times and wet times. So we have this... Each year, you know, we can't predict what the rainfall is going to be doing. Uh, it goes up and down. But we've constructed a portfolio of water entitlements which are diversified across different geographies. And we're in different rivers. Mm-hmm. We're also in different types of entitlement in each river. So we have some high security water which dis- does get supplied in a drought. We've got lower security which gets a lot of water when it's, when it's raining a lot. And the combination of those things, we've designed the portfolio so that we can try and achieve a yield each year, in, mm-hmm. as in we sell the water and then we can pay a distribution to our investors of somewhere between four and 5% each year, and uh, regardless of whether we have a wet year or a dry year. And over time, we're benefiting out of capital growth, and the driver of that is the scarcity of water. There's a lot of land available on these river systems There's markets now paying very good returns for irrigated produce, particularly as we were talking about the growth of the Asian markets. We've seen free trade agreements recently in Japan, Korea, Thailand, China, that have dramatically changed the demand and the price that farmers are receiving for such things as citrus and table grapes. Um, So we've seen expansion in those crops and that requires access to water. And those crops are far higher returns per megalitre than growing an annual crop of of rice or cotton. And there's a whole sort of spectrum of returns that can be achieved depending on what crop you're actually growing. Ultimately there is a cap on how much permanent agriculture we'll have because in drought years you can't make it rain with money of course and so everyone is conscious about what is the total acreage that we've planted to the crops that absolutely have to be watered every year. Uh, Where the flexibility comes is the annual crops that can be planted each year or not, depending on what the price of water is. I think it's
0: interesting to step back to your flagging some of those agreements and trade agreements have really made a material difference to the amount of demand for some of our agriculture. I think you quoted, when I was speaking to you recently, um, a farmer who changed their setup and what they were supplying, and that led to a, a you know
1: a big increase in production and what they were doing. Can you talk yeah. to that a little bit? Yeah, certainly. So you know, anecdotally, and this is from farmers that we know and we've been engaged with. We not only invest in water, we also invest in farmland development. Uh, and the free trade agreement with Japan removed a tariff that was existing on table grapes, and all of a sudden the table grape producers were getting orders. And we know of a guy who. In his first year servicing that market, he got an order for 50 containers of table grapes and then the next year was 150 containers and the next year was 300 containers. And so the pricing of what he was receiving relative to a domestic market that was really the main market beforehand dramatically increased and their returns on their farms increased and they then looked to expand their production. So he's now built out a business which is far greater than they had before, Um, lots of other farmers the same, they've moved away from perhaps growing wine grapes in the past to table grapes, so you visit areas like Mildura and Robinvale in that part of the Murray and you'll see at this time of year all these white covers over the grapevines which are not growing wine grapes they used to be but they've changed varieties over to table grapes and benefiting from these returns which are far greater than a wine grape return in that region. And so that's where the water trading system
0: and that mechanism is driving the efficiency to the market. Well
1: what's what's happening is it's driving the returns for for water. So Mm -hmm. people are looking at look if I stick with growing wine grapes I'm only getting a return that might be Mm -hmm. you know perhaps two or three hundred four hundred five hundred dollars a megalitre return. If I switch to table grapes in that region I can get double that return for the water. The water's the limiting factor. And I'm prepared to pay more for my water if that's Absolutely. the case. Well, I can because I'm getting get a higher more. return. And that's then, as they're trying to expand, it feeds back into the fact there's only so many water rights on issue in each region. So it's a really unique, I guess, investment in the sense that even though water prices have been going up, even though the asset price has been going up, we can't create more supply. In that region mm-hmm. there's not going to be more dams built in the Murray-Darling Basin by definition of this Murray-Darling Basin plan which was long debated and finally resolved in 2012 and it'll continue to be reviewed mm-hmm. uh, but we've got to a point where as a nation we've decided that we need to preserve the health of the rivers that now 65% or so of the water that flows through them can't be used and it's only that last 35% that we we're able to use for irrigated agriculture, that that volume or the size of the dams, we won't be building new ones. Because if we did, we'd then be taking more from the environment, which is the opposite of what we've, the path we've been on for the last 30 or so years. And since 2008, where you started the fund, what sort of returns have your clients and investors experienced? Uh, well, in our fund, the, the original mandate we basically was for a single investor and we're not able to sort of publish what that result was. Okay. But once we started our own fund in 2012, um, since then we've had returns that have been over 18% per annum and that's without any leverage. So that consists of a mix of income. So we've had distributions that have been generally in the range of around 3 to 5% per annum and then we've had capital growth in the assets that we hold in the fund. And do you think that's what do you think is reasonable for a client to
0: expect from this Mm -hmm. over the long term? Yes. Because from when I see, when I hear that, I think, oh, gee, things have
1: worked and gone really well. Yeah. So therefore, well, what expectation is reasonable? Exactly. I mean, that's a good question. um, That's the historical returns. What's what's it going to do when my money goes in today? Yes. Um, And our original view, and it's still remains is that we expect if you take a five to seven year view that we'll achieve a 10% annualised return uh, out of yield and capital growth. And while we've had some significant capital growth in the fund over that period of the last six years, the interesting thing and the validation, if you like, is that we're still achieving income returns or lease rates, if you like, on those assets, the same as what we were six years ago in terms of We used to lease the assets at 6% per annum, and we're still leasing the assets at 6% per annum, even though they've increased in value by more than double. So we haven't seen that compression in the yield uh, that you find when assets uh, do appreciate in value. Um, And that goes to the fact that the farmers who are leasing from us are getting better returns. They're able to afford a higher price for water than they used to, because they've changed the crops they're growing. They've become more productive. They change up their productivity. So they are gone it, rice, cotton, that's, that, and nuts. That's, but even within the crops they're growing. If you look at, say, the cotton sector, which I'm very familiar with, their productivity gains over a 10-year period are like 8% per well, they don't chip. They don't chip
0: now, they tell no, me. No, exactly. There are varieties um, that don't need it.
1: There's, they what, don't. What, and, what and do and kids do at the end of year 12 now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's no bowl buggies. There's no module makers. They do it all on, on board the, the picking machine now. So well, mate, he, he turns on his, all his irrigation with his iPhone. Exactly, yeah. So there's a tremendous amount of technology that's been adopted there. Yeah. It's made, And they've been entirely focused on what's the return per megalitre? Because that's the limiting factor. There's big acreages, but uh, the the limiting factor is how much water have you got each year and therefore what can you generate on that? And if you're not as efficient, then someone's going to come along and make you a price to buy your water because they're making a better return. So even in that industry, you can go to valleys like the Nam or the Guaida Valley and the area of cotton hasn't really changed over the last 30 years, but the number of farmers has. So yeah, you might have had 150 different farmers in the Guaida Valley you know, 20 years ago. There's now probably 40 or 50. They're still growing the same area, but those 40 or 50 farmers have had a higher return per megalitre. They've been able to pay more for the assets to buy out their neighbours effectively and aggregate mm. the water to a higher productivity. And, and that's where these returns and then the productivity of water use has really dramatically changed. How much
0: does weather affect the price and the returns for your investors?
1: Yeah. Um, So, again, this is something which is unique about the investment. It is not correlated to traditional markets because mm, ultimately... One of the reasons we, we like it. Yeah, we have this weather influence and Australia's weather is really variable and random and... And we've designed the portfolio, obviously, bearing that in mind. But if we have a, you know, a lot of rainfall, if we have big rainfall events, obviously the dams start filling up, you get more running through the rivers, um, but also your soil is wetter. So it has this impact of lessening demand for water and increasing supply at the same time. Mm-hmm. So the price of water in that year will generally fall and be lower. But what that will do, it'll encourage more of the annual croppers to grow a bigger area because the water is relatively cheap. They'll go, okay, we can plant more acreage this year mm-hmm. because the water is not that expensive and we can turn it into something more valuable. And that then increases the demand and reduces the supply in time because they start drawing down those dam levels. Then you get to a dry year perhaps where we don't get those inflows and you have less water available and you also have higher demand because the soils have dried out people have to apply more water than they ordinarily would. So you get less supply and more demand that gets created in those periods. And that's when you see the annual cropping guys just simply don't plant. Mm -hmm. And that creates a greater proportion of the water available that can go onto the permanent crops and make sure that they survive through a drought period. So from that perspective, uh, we have built a system which is, uh, very, It's robust and, it's, and, and it can contend with that volatility. And Australia in, in that is unique in the world. And there's plenty of other countries that have water challenges that have been now studying what Australia's done and we're recognised globally for the way that this has been set up and is now trading water actively. There's plenty of other countries that would love to have the same framework and have been trying to put it in place. This is despite
0: the you know, the, blue, the algae and the fish dying and some of the press and, yeah. you know, I think earlier, or late last year there was a 7.30 report with some people siphoning and stealing and yeah. claims of mismanagement of water and everything else. Um,
1: is political risk the biggest risk to this type of investment strategy? Yeah, it's always a good question that we have. I mean, first of all, I think, um, you yeah, in this country, water is highly emotive and, you know, we have this variable climate and it is the scarce resource. Uh, we we have put in place through really decades of evolution of the regulation of water, a very robust system. And we did put in place a system that was quite bipartisan. Um, The National Water Initiative was agreed between the states and the Commonwealth Government back in 2004. Uh, We got to a point where the Water Act was created and proposed in 2007. That set up the framework for the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, which was finally passed the Parliament in 2012. It passed 95 to 5. There was a time where there was lots of people arguing for what they thought was best for them and ultimately there's been a lot of compromise to get to a plan which is designed to try and meet all the objectives either environmentally, socially and economically of use of water. That has resulted in a reduction, certainly, of the amount of water available for irrigators. It's put in place a recognition that the environmental flows need to be preserved and they need to be put through those rivers as a priority and only after that extraction for use. But there are, of course, impacts of drought and the Darling River, which has been obviously publicised a lot recently through two years of drought, we haven't had any rainfall to run those rivers. It's not a permanently flowing river, unlike the Murray, for example, or the Murrumbidgee, which tend to have more permanent flows. And that's where you'll find the permanent agriculture. There's no permanent agriculture out on the Darling River. It, there's certainly annual production, but if there's no rainfall, and there's no runoff, no one grows a crop. And that's what's happened this time around. You know, We've had two years without the inflows. We haven't had the water extracted because it hasn't been there anyway. And the series of, Well, the river's become a series of pools, if you like, and they've Mm -hmm. been drying up. It's been extremely hot. They've had 10, 20, 30 days in a row, 40-plus temperatures, uh, and that's created a lot of growth of algae, uh, blue-green algae. We've had changes in the weather very rapidly, once prior to Christmas, once um, in January, where temperatures went from 40 degrees to 25 the next day. The algae starts to decay, it then deoxygenates the water. The fish float to the surface. That's been going on historically, plenty of times before. It's just these days we've got social media. People can publicise that for, you know, making the world aware of it. And um, certainly, you know, it's an emotive issue, and and there's politics that's always going to be played in in water. But ultimately, uh, we've spent a lot of time and money in the country to get to a point where there's a balance. There's certainly a even all irrigators want to preserve the environmental flows in the river to ensure those rivers do not go saline or do not, you know, deteriorate. Um, but they also want to have the ability to productively use water which would otherwise be running out to the ocean.
0: Yeah. So and they it, don't want to
1: kill the golden goose as much as anyone else. Absolutely not. And and likewise on their farmland. They're, you know, stewards of that land want to pass it on for future generations, but they also want to create economies regionally, grow food stuffs and fibre that is in demand, and it is something that creates jobs and profits uh, in Australia and, and export uh, export facilities, if you like, transport networks, and we populate the inland of Australia, which was originally why those dams were built. You know, you can go to a town like Griffith, for example, in New South Wales, which you know didn't exist a hundred odd years ago when they put in these first irrigation scheme out there in the middle of nowhere, you contrast that to nearby towns today, you can see the dramatic differences that irrigation can create when you do put that water to good use. And we do all understand, we've got to preserve the environmental flows first. Um, But there's been a lot of debate over a long period of time to get to the framework that we have now, where we only are extracting what water that is left after allowing for the environmental flows. Kim, you've given us a
0: great summary of the water opportunity um, and how you're investing into that and the diversification benefits of it. Thanks for that. It's terrific. Before we wrap up, um, a lot of clients and potential investors and people thinking about this may have, and we've historically had questions with regard to the Blue Sky Group. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's been well-publicized turmoil. And if I summarize that correctly, and you can correct, add, add on to this, that um, you've run the water and the agricultural assets for for the whole time. During that period, the listed entity, which you're a part of, but those assets were very separated and and, and isolated. Um, The the rest of that business that was in venture capital and some other funds and other alternate assets um, had some pretty extensive issues, and a lot of those people can see those on Google and, and so forth. You were called in for a period of time to uh, act as the CEO for the group um, and you've restructured all of that. Can you just add a little bit as to how people should think about that? Because sure. naturally enough, people see a headline in the Australian Financial Review and you know, then they say, well, I was thinking about this blue sky thing. Is that one and the same, yep. et cetera?
1: Yeah, um, look, fair enough. Um, yeah, certainly the business has evolved, basically had four different silos, if you like, of what we were pursuing as uh, in terms of investment opportunities in private markets um, and alternate investments. And agriculture and water has been one of those. And yes, that's what I headed up and established, and have been a part of growing that since 2010, where we've, particularly because of the nature of agriculture being long term, we have targeted institutional capital and there's a certain benchmark you have to achieve to do that, and so we had to have a lot of rigour In that business and certainly you know people have called into question things like valuation well when it comes to water there's sufficient turnover in these assets every month Uh, there's an observable market it's all those trades are registered public registers that can easily be accessed so we had less of an issue if you like around anyone calling into account our valuations in the other divisions with private equity venture capital even real estate you know, we invest growth capital, uh, we invest in private companies and try to help them grow with that capital. And valuation is is subjective until you actually make a sale of that business. You know, We are basically trying to decide, well, what is it worth? Uh, they're not publicly traded companies and they wouldn't do well as publicly traded companies at the stage that we invest in them because they're trying to grow and they're not necessarily profitable while we're in that growth phase. We normally have this sort of J curve of earnings. We take a very good business that's at a certain scale, has ambitions to grow, needs equity capital to do that, needs to have patient capital locked up there for three or four years to transition that business. That means we might be investing in a new factory, new equipment, new sales force, new marketing campaigns, all of those things come at expense, which if you look at a p and in the early years is probably gonna show you not a great result. But and if you're a listed entity you'd get with quarterly earnings. Yep. Patience isn't there. No. And so that's what we do, and then we are patient and we use then they closed end funds that we've typically invested through. So early days, yep, we've just got to play this out and allow the management teams to then get that business to evolve. Now, most cases we get a the uh, things work out, but there's always challenges along the way. You know, there's detours that we have to be hands on the levers to try and change up. If it's not going to plan, what else can we do next? And we're doing that in a private company, so it's not exposed to that same yep. uh, public pub- market scrutiny. But that's where we've come under scrutiny ourselves around what are the valuations that we've had on those and how the how's that portfolio performing. We have. 90 different funds. Uh, we have 15 or 20 that have been challenging in terms of you know, the private equity or venture capital. And venture capital is a risky investment in any case. So we're trying to target h- higher returns with a commingled portfolio of half a dozen investments in each portfolio. Now, some of those will fail. We understand that. And it's basically the ones that are the successes you hope are gonna be 10 baggers and that they'll make up in the portfolio for the ones that didn't work out. Um, but in any portfolio of 90 things, of 90 stocks that you may have, you're going to find there's underperformance. Um, and our ratio of the underperformance to the total that we're managing you know, in that sense is not that hideous, but it has certainly been something that you know, we were targeted for and there was a lot of publicity about that. Yeah, my job has been basically to come in and reorganise, restructure those other parts of our business to ensure that we are disciplined around how we're managing those investments, that we're operating at a level which is consistent with managing institutional capital, that we changed our governance structure, we changed our risk management approach, we changed our valuation approach, and that's resulted in a complete reset of our board. It's now full, you know, basically all independence. bar one or two. There's no executives on the board anymore. We've got a new CFO, new chief risk officer, soon to have a new CEO, So that whole governance of the corporate entity has changed to provide more accountability um, to our shareholders, obviously, but to allow us to get back on with managing our investments in private markets. And that's what we'll continue to focus on. And I think um, there's been certainly growing pains as our companies evolve from a pretty small outfit Mm. uh, to some significant growth in recent years, which... I think our systems and processes maybe didn't keep up with what we would have liked them to have been, and uh, and that's where I've certainly been instrumental in trying to get that discipline. And that still,
0: And yeah. that, for our investors in the water, is totally separate to those
1: water assets and that vehicle. Totally separate, and, in, and indeed in all the other funds. They're yes. all, they're not, they're managed by people who are employed by the corporate entity. They're yes. not part of the corporate entity, um, they are separate funds. They, are, they have their own trustee, they have their own custodian. We have independent administration in some cases. So the fund itself may be managed by an employee of this blue sky corporate, uh, but the assets are ring-fenced. Uh, the, the accounting is ring-fenced, the custody is ring-fenced. So that, that fund is basically something which endures without necessarily having any impact from the corporate of BLA BLA as a listed corporate manager of investments.
0: Kim, thank you very much for taking us through the investment thesis of water. I think it's very compelling and uh, being uncorrelated is uh, also very exciting. Um, And of course, thanks for the returns to our investors who have been invested. We really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Thanks,
1: David. Thanks very much for the opportunity.
0: Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting
1: CodaCapital.com.